In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Spectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a pretty good episode, I think, lined up. We'll start off by talking about Fox News and the way that it kind of built a machine or a monster that is now outside of its control. And then we'll talk about um, Iran and the recent killing of one of its top scientists and what that kind of means for future uh, relations in the Middle East and U.S.-Iranian relations. Um, and then finally, we will have a uh, interview with Kyle Chaska, who is a clinical fellow speech language pathologist at Atumwa Regional Health Center um, in Iowa. And he will talk to us about his experience um, treating COVID patients and some of the things that he's seen working in the hospital during the pandemic. Yeah, it's a really great interview. Make sure you <laughs> make sure you stay for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, <laughs> we, we, we just finished that interview. Um, mm. So, like, for you, it's the future. For us, it's the past. And I'm still <laughs> kind of reeling from it. It was... Me too. It, it, there was some insane eye-opening stuff. So make sure that you... Uh, uh, make yeah. sure you listen to that. Uh, speaking yeah. of COVID, Michael, um, why don't you depress us even more with some more COVID numbers? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, that's the thing. So, like, the... I feel like interviews like that make real to us the things that we've been theoretically and hypothetically conceptualizing throughout this pandemic. Like when you think about all the people that have have, have had COVID, um, you don't think about the fact that like a large percentage of those people have been medic in a medically induced coma, unconscious yeah. state for multiple weeks or had a surgery done on their trachea so that they could breathe. Like, you don't think about the fact that these people are like running on empty, like running out of savings and running to the end of their health insurance just so they can survive this thing. It's, it's pretty insane. Yeah. So worldwide, 64.7 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 60.4 million last week, which is a 7% increase. So far, 1.5 million people have died, which is up from 1.42 million last week which is a 5.6% increase in total deaths in one week. In the U.S., 14.3 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 13 million last week. Yes, 1.3 million new cases in one week, which is a 10% increase. So far, 279,000 people have died in the United States from COVID as hospitalizations are reaching new records. That's up from 266,000 deaths as of last week, which is a 4.9% increase in total deaths. That's an increase of 13,000 deaths since the last time we recorded, which is about 2,000 deaths per day. That's more than the number one killer of Americans, heart disease, on a per day basis. That means that for the last week, if you extrapolate from historical death rates from heart disease on a daily basis, 
COVID has been the number one killer of Americans. No American war has ever killed 2,000 people a day. If a foreign nation was doing this to us, we would be in an uproar. Every, every man, woman, and child would be enlisting in, in the army to go fight this, this foe. But instead, because it's a pandemic, because it's a disease, some people don't even think it's real. Yeah. And even people that think it's real just spread this bullshit about it being the fucking flu. I, again, if, 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 I, if I'm sounding kind of angry and if we're both sounding kind of down, like I said, listen to the interview. Yeah. Um, 2,000 people a day. Yeah. And, Dead. And also, like, we often do focus on the dead, but it's also hell to live with. So even if you do survive it, there's so much that people have to go through. I mean, there is a certain percentage of people in which there is asymptomatic, but yeah, I mean, it is a hellish disease. Yeah. And based on our testing, those are probably over and above the numbers that we know about. Like the number, the number of people that we're actually have confirmed cases for is probably below the number of total people with cases because of the asymptomatic group. Yeah. So like this, this 1.3 million new cases this week, a large portion of those people will undergo hellish treatments, a hellish experience yeah. to try to survive this thing and may have long-term, long-lasting implications like higher risk of stroke and heart disease. And the thing that just pisses me off is, you know, and we say this almost every week, but I'm going to say it again. It didn't have to be this bad. Yeah. And yeah. it is propaganda outlets that were trying so hard to cover up the fact that their guy did a bad job at handling this pandemic, that it was the, the misinformation and the disinformation that they spread that has caused so many people to not take this seriously. Yeah. Fox News has blood on its hands. Mm-hmm. And that leads us into our first segment. Yeah. So Fox news is a crazy propaganda outlet. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's be real. It's a propaganda news outlet. I'm not saying that CNN and NBC don't sometimes do a little bit of propaganda. You know, I'm not even necessarily saying that they aren't often very partisan, you know, that Mm -hmm. sometimes they don't, you know, twist stories or manipulate facts a little bit. Um, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even saying that they don't sometimes like pick and choose what they talk about based on like a specific point of view they might be trying to push, Mm -hmm. but everything they do pales in comparison to the bullshit mountain as Jon Stewart would call them of Fox news. Yeah. And the scariest thing is that, you know, today what we're primarily going to be talking about is the fact that Fox News has gotten to the point where they've radicalized their audience so much that their audience is actually starting to turn against them because they don't think Fox News is crazy enough. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, Fox News... I mean, all you have to do is take an article from any from some of the major news sources about a topic and compare it to the article or coverage from Fox News on the exact same topic... And you can quickly see that the journalistic practices and the quality of the journalism, the quality of like intentionally laying out facts 
of after you make a claim, making sure to contextualize it. Like the things that make an article uh, able to be read in context with an appropriate level of skepticism and information are just absent from Fox News. And and it's not by accident. Over the last couple of decades, they have just done their best to create this information schism where their viewers um, think that Fox News is like the only good, reliable source of you know, independent information and that the rest of the nation is a bunch of indoctrinated idiots. And they do it through this heavily biased or outright misguided or or false reporting, especially done through commentators and opinion people that don't claim to be journalists. That's a big part of it because they try to like stand up their news outlet as being reliable and that enables them to convince an audience of people that what they're hearing from the commentators is fact, that Rush Limbaugh and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram are telling you things that are true, even though Tucker Carlson specifically is an opinion program that, has, that a court has said no one should take seriously enough to even charge them with defamation. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a well-oiled machine— yeah, that is works. really designed to to radicalize people. And and the thing is... And it works too well. <laughs> it works too well. Because they're now at the point where uh, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, both opinion people on Fox News, um, and, uh, and Steve Ducey on Fox and Friends, have all acknowledged the fact that Trump lost. Yeah. Like, they've acknowledged the fact that he's lost. Like, there was this clip where Laura Ingram was talking to her audience about this, and she had to, like, provide so many caveats of, you know, oh, but this this doesn't mean that I'm not on the right. You know, mm -hmm. this doesn't mean that I'm anti-right-wing. Sure. Just, just because I believe the facts that are true. Yeah, it's, just, it's just the reality. He lost the election, uh, and he's not going to be president anymore. And he lost the election is not a partisan statement. It's just a factual statement, but it's gotten to the point where they've radicalized their audience away from reality to the point where it it is a partisan statement. And here's yeah. the thing. You know, it started out with other things that you might look at and think, well, I mean, those aren't quite as blatant. I mean, mm -hmm. it started out with pushing this idea that climate change wasn't real. You know, yeah. pushing ideas like climate change isn't real, pushing ideas like evolution isn't real pushing mm -hmm. ideas like racism isn't real despite the fact that it's like all of those things are are measurable and observable yeah. um and and now it's at the point where just blatant election results yeah reporting them accurately are just are just partisan but that's how they that's how the information that's how information warfare and like the erosion of our information ecosystem works, right? Like, like the, the thing that Fox News did so well that is now they're going, I think ultimately going to be their undoing is that they made the fact that, that something is accepted by a majority of people, that something is accepted by the mainstream for their audience, they made that evidence against the validity and truth of the thing. 
Yeah. The more like for the argument they keep making is that the more people believe this certain thing, the less independent, the less verifiable, the the more that those people are just buying into propaganda and therefore having a fringe belief is evidence in and of itself that that belief is likely true. Yeah. Which means that the more radical of a statement you make, and this is where they're this is where they're losing control, the more radical of a statement you make and believe, the less you know it is accepted by a large group of people, the more likely it is in their viewers' beliefs to be true. Yeah. And there's important evidence to suggest that Fox News's audience is really turning against them. So yeah. uh, Morning Consult has been uh, gathering data about the favorability rating of Fox News among Republicans for quite a long time. So from December 2019 through uh, November 2nd, 2020, uh, the average favorability rating among Republicans that viewed Fox was 67%, so pretty overwhelming majority. Um, and the unfavorability rating of the channel was 16%. Now, there was a poll conducted between November 9th and November 16th, so after the election, after you had some of the uh, post-election coverage, them calling the race, and also... Uh, opinion people kind of acknowledging the fact that Trump lost the race. Mm -hmm. The favorability rating among GOP respondents dropped 13 percentage points to 54%, a tiny majority. And the, f the unfavorability rating doubled to 30%. Mm. Wow. And it's, it's being reflected in their viewership as well. Yeah. Like the, the Fox's daytime viewership dropped by 32% comparing the two weeks before the election to the two weeks after the election, while at the same time, other news sources um, had an increase in, in daytime viewership. So we're seeing that it's not just a erosion of viewership overall, but Fox News specifically is having, having viewers flee. Yeah. And while at the same time, Newsmax, which is a... a, a along with One American News Network, an extreme, like, hardline right-wing news network, which is now being um, praised by Trump because they, even more than two weeks after the election, refused to uh, acknowledge that Biden is the president-elect. Newsmax um, has seen its daily average daytime viewership jump from 88,000 two weeks pr prior to the election to now 474,000 viewers per day yeah the two weeks after the election which is yeah. an enormous enormous jump yeah and and according to data from comscore uh as of march 2019 uh, one american news network was ranked as the fourth highest service in the genre of cable news slash business slash info networks um mm. that's behind uh cnn nbc and Fox News. Number four. These That's are people insane. that have been making these insane claims like that, yeah. that Trump actually won with like 400 electoral votes. So one of their main opinion guys, a guy named Graham Ledger, who uh, is, does this show called The Daily Ledger, um, his signature line 
when he when he signs off is remember even when i'm wrong i'm right mm. like he's straight up telling you he's lying to you i mean yeah. <laughs> like like well either that or it's a pun about even when i'm wrong at least we're all on on the same side we're on the right like that's even worse that's even worse <laughs> yeah i mean like you know, that's even worse. Basically, you're saying, you know, it's okay to be factually incorrect as long as you're a right winger, yeah. then it's okay. That's that's not how reality works, bro. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and, you know, they, I, I've, been, I've been reading, uh, I read this article in the Business Insider where this guy basically sat down and watched them for a week straight. Mm-hmm. And... By the end of it, the guy was basically saying, I was suspicious of everyone in power wanting to take my freedoms away. Yeah. Um, That's the thing. <laughs> They're good at this. Yeah. That's the scary, that, to me, that's the scariest part. As I, when I see a Tucker Carlson uh, clip or segment and, and these other guys are similarly effective, I, it, it sends chills down my spine. Because the rhetorical tricks that he's using, the artful placement of of half truths and truths adjacent to lies, just makes the the world suspicious and murky, yeah. and and does an amazing job, like encouraging its viewers to not only distrust the truth but also feel like feel like they are entitled to have the truth already within them. To me, yeah. that's like a big part of Tucker. He, he, his implication is like, you and I both already know because of our existing biases that all these libs are trying to get us or all these immigrants are trying to get us or that, we, or that the, the liberals are trying to take our guns. You and I already know that this is true. Yeah. And it's like, it's such an insidious tactic to me because it enables ev- like every viewer to view their to view their own biases and pre uh, their own um, pre-existing beliefs as the north star that they should follow yeah and the, but but the thing is a lot of what one american news network does is not even like is not even based in reality like at least yeah. a lot of tucker carlson's bullshit yeah it's it's based in reality to the point where if you like if you didn't look further you might mm-hmm. think okay that makes sense sure but like some of the stuff that they have like i was i was looking at um some reports they've done on uh undocumented immigration or you know of yeah. course what they call it illegal aliens yeah, yeah. um and they there's this graphic that they put up that basically claimed that uh almost 27 million uh, illegal aliens live in the United States right now. Mm-hmm. And they actually like, they, they have an asterisk saying, Oh, this, this data comes from the department of Homeland security. No, it doesn't mm. like, no, it, it doesn't. It just doesn't. Yeah. That's, that's just, it's just fabricated. It's just not true. Like the logic is, uh, I mean, the logic seems to be, you know, the, the current department of Homeland security statistics show about 11.5 million in 2014, um, and 12 million in 2015. So the idea is, I guess there's a rate of growth to now, but even if you adjust for that rate of growth, it just doesn't add up. 
-hmm. It's completely fabricated. Like the most recent, uh, the most recent estimate is from 2017 from the Pew Research Center, and they estimated that that number is like 10.5 million. Yeah, it's just it's completely you mean the fabricated. Pew Research Center. <laughs> but that's the thing, like right, like like if you were to try to push back, they would say, "Well, it's a difference of opinion." Like you no, believe those facts, but not. you're just you're just going to all the mainstream like information sources, and we are we've already decided that those are not trustworthy. Yeah. Like, but because you can't argue against people that have rejected truth in favor of lies on a graph. And this is this I think is going to be one of the most difficult things for progressives, leftists, even moderates mm -hmm. in the post post Trump era. And that's the fact like how do you argue against that? Yeah. Like how when do you have that conversation. When there's no defeasibility test, when there's yeah. no information that you can give somebody to prove them wrong when when the attitude is basically here's what i think i have no evidence and i don't need evidence sure like just just the other day and i know that i know that this is anecdotal so take it with a grain of salt but just the other day uh a friend of mine on facebook posted about the fact that uh joe biden apparently got more african-american votes than barack obama mm-hmm and basically he was like, now, reasonable people look at that and it just doesn't pass the sniff test. I have no evidence of fraud, but reasonable people can look at that and suspect there might be fraud. So, again, how do you argue with that? I mean, yeah. how do you argue with Donald Trump throwing this insane press conference in which, like, a, a, a person asks him a very reasonable question, which is basically the... Um, so your own lawyers are saying in court that there is no fraud. And yet when they're out of court, they're saying there is fraud. Like, how can you keep pushing this idea of fraud? And he's just like, oh, no, they're not saying that in court. It's like we have the transcripts. We know they're saying that. How yeah. do you argue against people when, like, the reality is so easy to find, mm. but they just refuse to believe it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the answer is slowly. Yeah, <laughs> like, but the, I mean, that's how that is how this monster grew. And I think that's the only way that we dismantle it, because, you know, it did grow slowly. It, it to your point earlier, it started off with just, you know, denying things like climate change and evolution and like, OK, well, maybe we can like have a difference of opinion on, on the evolution piece and, and you know, we're not going to solve climate change anyway. We're all going to die. So I guess that doesn't matter. <laughs> but. But like then it moved on to like birtherism and like and and the w the wedge the schism between between this the political poles and the realities that non overlapping realities that those different people started to embrace um, have just gotten further and further apart um, to your point and I think the only way that you combat that is slowly is like yeah. somehow trying to get legitimacy back to these conversations because and and i think you have to do it by making people feel like it's in their best interest you can't do it with with charges of hypocrisy yeah. right like you like hypocrisy is not an argument that works against these people anymore yeah at all it doesn't work against trump it's not convincing to him he doesn't care yeah um and and you can't do it with charges of of not having facts because 
for every fact you lay out, they've got a made up graph. Like you, anybody can make, anybody can put data on a graph. And so like, it's, um, I think it really is about trying to come at it from more of the emotional angle. Like the reason that I think like the reason this is so appealing and, and maybe you disagree and you're an expert in communication and rhetoric. So totally correct me if I'm, if you think I'm wrong, but like, I feel like the way that the Fox news has, has made this happen is they is kind of in three ways. One is, is that thing where if you believe it, then you're entitled to it being true, which is kind of what you talked about with your anecdotal example on Facebook. Like, well, you know, I, I just don't buy it. So, and I know that I'm right. So there's got to somewhere be evidence to support that. I think secondly, it's with, with fear, things like, Things like immigrants are coming to take your jobs, liberals are coming to take your guns, socialists are coming to take your freedom. It makes it in their personal, psychological, safety, security, and interest to believe these things. Yeah. And, the, and, and the more outrageous the claims about people trying to attack them, the less secure they feel and the more they feel like they've got to get more information. Like, like, like if you had a lion coming at you and you believed that it was coming to kill you, you wouldn't, you would try to get as much information about how to kill, how, how to like fight lions about lions as possible. Right. Like it's this, it's this fear cycle that just, that feeds itself. Yeah. But yeah, I think that definitely does explain a lot of the reasons behind it. Um, what I would say at this point is it's going to be very difficult to deprogram people on a large scale level. Yeah the way it really does start is to have those tough conversations with people that you love, people that you you care about, because mm-hmm. the issue is people are being told by Fox news and by one American news network, you know, not that liberals are well-intentioned, stupid people, but that sure. they straight up, they're evil, they're satanic and they, they want to kill you. Like they want, yeah. they want like some, dangerous illegal alien to come in and you know and kill you like they want to impose socialism so that you so that all your freedoms are taken away and like again i'm not being hyperbolic that's what they're saying yeah, that's, that's what trump what has saying. been saying yeah. i'm not like i'm not straw manning i'm not like they're actually doing that that was the whole narrative of the rnc yeah exactly like just just spend a little bit of, like rewatch the RNC. That's what they said. That was mm-hmm. the argument they were making. But the thing is, it's hard to override friendships and familial connections. Mm. So one of the things that I've often found is I have I've had conversations with people that are very far to the right that are get most of their news from one American News Network and Fox News. And one of the things that I've found is that when they talk about liberals being these evil people that are coming for all your freedoms, yeah. and then I ask them, okay, is that what you think I am? Like, mm. do you think that I'm someone that, that hates you? They're like, well, no, 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 of course. You're one of the good ones. You know, mm-hmm. Nathan, you're one of the good ones. You're just, you're just misinformed, Nathan. That's, yeah, that's what I hear the most. So, so I think that right there is actually very important. Because at least that brings the conversation into 
well, they think you're misinformed. You think they're misinformed. That's a place to start. Yeah. Like if they think that no matter what you want them to die or you Mm -hmm. want their everything they stand for to die, then you're never going to get anywhere. But if it's your family, if it's someone that you love, it's, if it's someone that loves you, it's a tough conversation, but that's how you actually get places. Yeah. If you do it right. If you do it, most of us mess it up. Yeah, that's for sure. (laughs) Most of us take it personally and, and when someone else takes it personally, we respond in kind, which is a really hard thing to do. Like it is hard to sit there and, and have the things that you believe be called not only evil, but yeah, you know, personal attacks. Yeah. It, I, I've, I, I've been trying to have these conversations for literally years and yeah. I've made, I think I've improved some and made some progress, but on like, I find that the point about where they, where they say you're just misinformed is a hard one to overcome because you can't have every conversation with them, you yeah. know, like, and when I'm asked, well, like, where do you go for your information? Where do you go for your news that you think you're right? And you think that I'm wrong. The answers are the places that you should be going for news. They are, they're not only like actually going and reading the studies, but they're also, you know, uh, the Washington post and Axios and, and Reuters and, and a bunch of different sources of information. Um, and as soon as I say that, the the eyes tend to glaze over. Yeah. You know, they they don't think that my information's good and they're not gonna go look for it. Yeah. Whereas whereas I guess my guess my challenge to that is like if you ever find yourself exclusively getting information from one place and not going and checking at other places, you might be fine you might find that you're not getting the best information or the most complete story. And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Michael, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Nathan, we do Tips for Good every week because, um, well, because I think we all just need to to hold me closer, Tiny Dancer, to count the headlights on the highway, and to make the world a better place. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, always that. <laughs> Just always come back to that that major point that keeps us anchored. <laughs> of course. So, Nathan, what is our tip for good today? Well, our tip for good is actually very timely in comparison to uh, our previous topic. And it's specifically about how to have conversations with people that are just spouting off talking points. Mm. Now... I'm sure a lot of you have been in situations in which you've been talking to somebody about something political and they've just bombasted you with a hundred different talking points, many of which are unrelated. Mm -hmm. So like you say, Hey, I think everyone should have healthcare. And their response is, Oh yeah, but you know, liberals are socialists and socialism is Venezuela and Venezuela is bad. And also there's a lot of, there's a lot of illegal immigrants that are coming over across the border and that's really bad. But on top of that, you also have all these issues of voter fraud and, and, and the just like spouting one thing after another, after another, after another. And a lot of it's just, it's just regurgitated talking points. So you can't really have a conversation about a hundred different things at once. Mm -hmm. So the tip this week is to have more isolated conversations. Yeah. So the next time you want to have a political conversation with someone who disagrees with you, try to isolate one specific topic. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if they give you a huge list of things, choose one and be like, okay, you know, that that's a lot. Let, let's focus on this. Let's talk about this. Yeah. And approach it from a more Socratic way. So mm. what I mean by Socratic is ask questions. All right. Don't, don't use your own talking points. All right. Don't like it, most of the time you don't even necessarily want to throw a bunch of facts in their face. What you mm. want to do is you want to get them to think. So be like, okay, so what is, what is your issue with that? Okay, where are you getting that information from? Interesting. So, so how do you know that that information is reliable? So things like that. Mm-hmm. Get them to actually think. You might not persuade them, but you'll at least get them to think about why they believe what they believe. Yeah. And let's be clear, this is not easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because because one of the reasons that that method, accidental or intentional, of throwing out a bunch of topics is that it is tempting to try to tackle them all. It's yeah. distracting. There is a lot there. But you don't have to tackle everything. Yeah. And you don't have to tackle the most controversial thing first. Yeah. You know, like... If someone, if someone at the end throws out something that may be vaguely dog whistly, maybe don't latch onto that first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe focus on something that you might make a little more progress on because it starts with a wedge. It starts with an argument that gets them to trust you. Yeah. Like one time I was having a conversation with a very, a very dear relative of mine um, who, you know, whom I, I, I love, uh, but I also have a lot of very heavy disagreements. And uh, this this relative basically made the point that the Democratic Party platform is virtually identical to the Communist Manifesto. And I was like, okay, so can you point to me which part of the Communist Manifesto, like, c- can, you, can you cite a specific part of the Communist Manifesto and a specific part of the Democratic National Platform and then show me which, like, show me how it mimics that same yeah. sentiment or that same language. And she couldn't do it because it, it didn't exist. And she realized, yeah. Oh, okay. Well maybe, <laughs> maybe that's, and that's the, the thing. Like that is so clearly something that this person probably heard. Like, yeah, I really doubt that they read the a hundred and some pages of the democratic <laughs> party platform that year yeah. or the many hundreds of pages in the communist manifesto. It's probably something that, they heard from a commentator and thought, yeah. oh my gosh, if that's really true, that must be true. Yeah. And then, and then yeah. it became an arrow in their quiver. Yeah. So again, ask questions, you know, allow people mm. to talk, allow people to express their opinions. And here's the other thing. And this, this I think is one of the most difficult parts because it's always tempting to one up people with a snappy comeback. Sure. And I'll admit I do that sometimes. Sometimes sure. it's just That's cathartic. why we have a podcast. So yeah. we can just go snappy comment after snappy comment. <laughs> exactly. But you really can't approach it that way. You can't approach yeah. it with the idea of, ooh, I'm gonna I'm gonna intellectually own you. I'm going to eviscerate <laughs> you. I'm going to, you know, I I'm gonna I'm gonna get you. you to vote in your own interest the most patronizing comment ever made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if you do believe like yeah i'm trying to get this person to vote in their own interest it's a very patronizing comment but so you can't approach it that way you have to approach it with genuine curiosity Mm -hmm. like approach it almost as if you're interviewing a person yeah you know 
And that's yeah. that's really the only way you can get people to to yeah. open up and also to to think about their own points of view. Mm-hmm. And that's tips for good. So for our second segment, we will be talking about Iran. Um, so, so last week, one of Iran's most prominent nuclear scientists, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, uh, was killed in an ambush um, on a rural road outside Tehran. Um, now, this guy was kind of like the head nuclear scientist in Iran um, during its uh, push to develop nuclear weapons about two decades ago. Um, and his his role in Iran's current programs, at least ostensibly, are, are focused on um, reactors and uranium enrichment. Um, and, and, you know, there's just conflicting reports whether this is about developing a nuclear weapon, but, but it seems like a, a, a fairly consistent consensus within the intelligence community that this is at least... Um, part of an effort after the Iran deal to continue the the path down the the road of being able to develop a weapon like that at some point. Um, And so the killing of the scientist was um, a pretty brazen act, right? Like on the level of uh, killing Soleimani back in January. Yeah. And at this point, it's looking like Israel was responsible for it. Uh, mm-hmm. Iran has already blamed Israel, um, and they kind of they basically said, "We neither confirm nor deny that we did that." Yeah, yeah. and uh, there was actually a uh, a CNN apparently uh, did an interview with a senior U.S. administration official who basically said that yes, Israel was behind the assassination, but he refused to comment on whether or not uh, the Trump administration knew. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I would like to point out, I have watched a lot of commentators and left-wing media who have kind of jumped the gun a little bit and speculated that this is Trump. Like, this was, yeah. this was, definitely, this was definitely Trump that did it. And, you know, there is, there is certain speculative evidence to suggest that that's within the realm of possibilities. I mean, we know that Donald Trump was considering a militaristic strike against Iran, like right after the election. And the idea was to basically screw things up as much as possible for the new Biden administration, mm-hmm. like to leave a mess for him to pick up. So I can understand why a lot of people are coming to that conclusion. But at this point, I don't, there's not really enough evidence to suggest that. Yeah. And, and the like, much more likely, uh, driver is that this is just in the personal and national interest of Bibi Netanyahu and the Israeli government. Yeah. Which that isn't to say that this is not still going to create a mess for the Biden administration. Oh, for sure. So Joe Biden has been really wanting us to get back into the Iran nuclear deal. Mm -hmm. Um, And honestly, the fact that we left it is just, like, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, um, it has was, led it, it has led Iran to uh, a stockpile twelve times the level of enriched uranium that they were allowed to have during yeah. the deal. And also, 
all reports prior to the trashing of the deal indicated that they were following it. Yes. And like the criticisms that Trump had of the Iran nuclear deal was number one, the sunrise provision, the fact that it would expire. Mm -hmm. So your solution is just rip it up now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, and then, can, and then not try to replace it with anything. Like yeah, you just exactly. put a bunch of sanctions on them with no controls over their, over their n n nuclear development. Yeah. And number two was, he was claiming that basically we're sending them money. Like we're just sending them money. And that's also just factually incorrect. We lifted sanctions mm -hmm. on them. And, yeah. and I think that that's an important point that needs to be brought up. So one of the things that I feel has not gotten enough attention within media is the effect that those sanctions have had on Iran. Mm. Now, you can make the argument that a lot of the uh, Iranian government is like they don't represent the values of the United States. You know, sure. there's um, there's a lot of theocratic rule within Iran. Oh, um, yeah. You know, it's they're not necessarily the good guys. No, absolutely not. But that being said, what those sanctions have indirectly done. So so basically the sanctions that were put back in place on Iran had exceptions for humanitarian aid. So mm. like, you know, food, medicine, things like that. But the problem is it indirectly made it so that banks did not want to participate in the Iranian economy. Yeah. And what that led to was programs designed to get aid to Iran to the Iranian people, you know, medicine and food, they were not funded because the banks that they used to fund them did not want to do business with Iran because of the sanctions. Yeah. So indirectly, it created this massive health crisis in Iran and right before a pandemic yeah, right before a pandemic yeah right before a pandemic yeah. so we completely like it, this wasn't just fucking over the government we fucked over the people yes and that's the thing like yes the the iranian government may not be the good guys but the iranian people certainly aren't the bad guys you yeah. know like they're not like one of the reasons ostensibly why these sanctions were in place were to try to sow unrest among the people to to help them um, remove the current administration. Well, a couple of things. One, how much how much suffering has to occur for enough unrest to arise that they that they overthrow the current administration? A tremendous amount, which means yeah. that you're already pricing in a tremendous amount of suffering for these people, so that you can get the current government out of out of power. Yeah. Um, and two, it doesn't seem like that's worked. Like they're not, they're not that popular, but governments all over the world are not that popular right now. And, yeah. and there's, there's no clear indication that, um, there's been really any progress yeah. on that front. I mean, the United States strategy. Congress has like what an 11% approval rating. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we're, we're not like taking up arms and charging the Capitol. Sure. Yeah, you know, and maybe we would be if we were freaking starving and unable to get medical care and dying in the streets and things like that because of economic sanctions. But like, is that really the price you want to pay? Yeah. So, so again, this was nothing more than an attempt to just 
do the opposite of what Obama did. Yeah. And not only did tearing up the Iran nuclear deal cause more suffering among the people of Iran, but it also completely sowed mistrust for the United States around the world. Mm -hmm. So right now, Joe Biden really wants to reestablish diplomatic relations with Iran. Mm -hmm. And the issue is one of our biggest allies in the Middle East is Israel. Yeah. So, and they're firmly against diplomatic relations with Iran. Yeah. They like Benjamin Netanyahu hated the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah. He specifically said on election night, um, he said, quote, there must be no return to the previous nuclear agreement. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 he's, he's vastly against, he's very against it. And, um, on top of it, this particular science or scientist was like number one on the list of, of threats to Israel because they think that, uh, Iran is continuing a clandestine nuclear weapons program. Yeah. And so, you know, it kind of, and, and on top of that there, they are, uh, the Israeli government is, is forming diplomatic relations with other Arab nations in the region and forming a pretty um, effective uh, uh, block of interests, um, which are which all have Iran as kind of a common enemy. Um, and so, you know, I'm not sure what the path is forward because yeah. you have our allies in the Middle East against diplomatic relations yeah. Um, and taking actions to kind of destabilize Iran to potentially um, make it harder for Joe Biden to achieve diplomatic relations. Now, Iran doesn't seem to have bitten at this bait, um, at least not yet. But but who knows what could happen during the like the lame duck, duck offensive foreign policy of our government. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not sure how you how you tiptoe through that minefield. Yeah, at best, it looks like we can kiss any chance of diplomatic relations goodbye with Iran. Because yeah. I, I just I just don't see how we get back from this. But at worst, I mean, they're vowing retaliations at this point, and yeah. that could start a war. Yeah, the the only glimmer of hope to me is that they haven't done anything yet. Yeah, which makes me hope that they are trying to lay low until the Biden administration is in place when, when maybe, maybe they're trying to, and they have called for us to reenter the Iran deal. And so like, maybe they're trying to wait out this storm, but I still don't know how you then resolve the yeah. relationships with our other allies in the region. Yeah. And also at the same time, to your point earlier, we are totally discredited. Like yeah. if, if in what's the point of making a 30 year deal, yeah. If in four years a, a Republican can come in and tear it up. Yeah. I mean, Trump has already said that he's um, that he's planning. I mean, he's all but said that he's planning on running in 2024. Sure. And if I were Iran and I were to see that, I would be like, I mean, do I really want to get into another deal with the United States if it's possible that in four years that orange idiot will be back? Yeah. It's or, or, or like maybe I want to get in some deal, but like the idea that one, having eroded that relationship this obviously and terribly, like that they would stick to the deal in fully good faith seems unlikely. 
Yeah. Right. And two, um, they, they would probably play much more hardball. Like it took, it took months and months of work, if not years to get the Iran deal negotiated and in place. Like, yeah, they might play even more hardball now because, um, they have fewer incentives to negotiate a really good, strong, good faith deal. Yeah. And again, as usual, it it seems like this whole thing has become a partisan issue. Yeah. And th- the arguments against it are just bad. Mm. Like they're just they're just terrible. The sun it's they're either lies like oh, we're just sending them money or they're stupid like oh, it's because of the sunset provision. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's the thing like I guess I guess I think about like what the alternate paths are. Like for if so say we didn't go down the road of diplomatic a diplomatic solution there's only one other solution there's only two other options one unchecked like unchecked ability to pursue a nuclear arsenal unchecked by the united states which is untenable to the other countries in the region and to us yeah. the other only other option is some type of armed invasion or like military action which seems like that's the direction that some other countries in the region, Israel, perhaps the UAE, are trying to pursue or some type of clandestine action that is able to destabilize their nuclear pursuit without um, an all-out war or conflict. But, like, it seems like those are the only three options. And of those three, a diplomatic solution, which is as strong as the Iran nuclear deal originally was, um, potentially with like some even more transparency or maybe with just some more spying so that if they have a clandestine operation to develop nuclear weapons, we know about it. You know, like I feel like, I feel like there, this path is just an, you know, unavoidable road down, like, you know, down this path towards an armed conflict in the region. And I don't see how that is advantageous to anybody's interest there. So now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of of the the Week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is uh, Turning Point USA's own Charlie Kirk. Oh, man. Come on down. You brought this guy up to me. And I went and looked him up, and he is weird looking. <laughs> what is with these people? They look like uh, he looks like a child drew his face or made his face out of femo clay. <laughs> it's it's yeah. terrible. Well, the the whole idea behind Turning Point USA is basically to appeal to younger conservatives. So I guess they had to make him look a little bit like a baby. <laughs> Not that young. We didn't Not mean that, that young. young. No. <laughs> Too young. Um, yeah. So what did Charlie Kirk do to land him on our show? Well, so Charlie Kirk had a hot take about why it is that the left was saying that you really shouldn't visit a bunch of extended family over Thanksgiving. You shouldn't have take. massive gatherings. As yeah, hot a hot as take say, on the reason why the left was saying that. A hot take on, say, you know, as hot as like 
delicious homemade mashed potatoes, <laughs> a turkey fresh out of the oven. <laughs> no. As hot as that? <laughs> no, no. Uh, so he made the argument that uh, the left hates Thanksgiving and has always hated Thanksgiving. <laughs> Which right off the bat... What would the last hate about Thanksgiving? Yeah, which it's, right well, off the bat, I'm just like, this is news to me. Yeah, I'm on the left. I Yeah. I've never I'm heard this. Pretty far to the left, actually. I don't... <laughs> I, I don't recall hating Thanksgiving. I mean, it's my third favorite holiday. It's like, okay, so please, please sir, enlighten me. Why why do I hate Thanksgiving? And and he 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 made the argument that the hate... That, that, that the left hates Thanksgiving because... The left doesn't want you to be thankful for anything mm-hmm. because if you're thankful for something, then you are naturally going to shy away from conflict. You know, basically conflict mm. is the only way you get things to happen. And because the left wants a revolution that they don't want people to be thankful. They don't want you to feel unified with your family because they want you to maintain a state of constant conflict. And that is why they're using the virus as an excuse <laughs> to prevent you from having Thanksgiving dinner with a bunch of people. Man, that's awesome. It's awesome on so many levels. Like like, like the idea that if we could all get, for th- get together for Thanksgiving, there would just be no more conflict. Like the left would, wouldn't have any yeah. more complaints. Like <laughs> if they just liked the mashed potatoes. <laughs> you do realize that for a lot of people on the left, that's like that's the only time they're around the right wing members of their family. I would sure. say Thanksgiving yeah. breeds more conflict. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And also like guy, like um, the pandemic. Yeah. Like <laughs> we didn't need to make up a conspiracy theory to like yeah. recommend that people don't gather in large groups. Yeah. No, that There's was something killing people. That was in the large plan groups. all along. You know, yeah, basically, basically here's what happened. The left in in 2019, like we had we had Thanksgiving and it went really well. Everyone mm. was around each other, and, and they the were all happy like, and not revolting. Yeah, and the left was like, "Never again, never again." Here's what we're gonna do. Here's what we're gonna do. We're going to fabricate a virus and make mm. everybody panic about it, so that way mm. next year on Thanksgiving, people will not go to thanksgiving together they won't eat they mm. won't eat turkeys they won't visit their extended family the plot and then against... and then and then people are going to be sad and that's naturally going to lead to a communist revolution yes that i think that's actually in uh in marx's writings was i think the stages <laughs> are yeah. you know capitalism the war on Thanksgiving, socialism, <laughs> then communism. <laughs> it's one of when you free the means of Turkey from the platter. <laughs> Man, that's absolutely nuts. That's yeah. so funny. I'm yeah. I'm glad that we have this to laugh about because there's so yeah. little else that's any fun. Yeah, about. I I just I can't believe anybody takes him seriously. That's like, absolutely. I mean, from what I've heard from like other. Uh, from other leftist commentators that have like met him behind the scenes. Apparently he's actually a pretty nice guy. Like when you actually, when, when you're, when you're talking yeah. to him, like on a personal level, I, I hear he's a nice yeah. guy, but 
That definitely doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, but he's still an asshat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So congratulations to Charlie Kirk for being our asshat of, of the week. week. All right. So today we have a very special guest interview uh, he is a clinical fellow speech language pathologist, and he works at the Otomwa Regional Health Center. And he's here to talk to us a little bit about how things are with COVID in the health world. Kyle Chaska. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. I'm happy to talk. So real quick, before we get started, I just want to ask what exactly speech language pathology is about and how it relates to the rest of the medical field. So speech-language pathologists, we are rehab specialists by nature. So when you think physical therapy, right, everybody's pretty familiar with that. We're kind of in that same realm. There's three big therapies, physical, occupational, and speech, which gets confusing because we're called a pathologist, not a therapist, but, (laughs) you know, that's how it is. So in particular, what I work with patients on, particularly in the acute care setting, in a hospital setting, is uh, swallowing. So particularly with post-stroke patients, uh, head and neck cancer patients, anything like that, there may be alterations to how the musculature moves in the throat and actually can cause issues with how they consume food, some of it. You know, we've all had that moment where we drink something that goes kind of down the wrong pipe, right? And you start coughing. Well, think about that happening all the time. And instead of your your vocal cords bouncing that back out, it actually goes into your lungs. Uh, that causes pneumonia, which can be pretty deadly. And uh, so that's one of the aspects. I also deal with motor speech. So how you say words. Uh, So, again, muscle weakness caused by, say, strokes, cancer, um, pretty much anything else. I deal with that and help people to kind of clear up their speech after. We also deal with language, speech language pathologists. So people who, due to medical issues such as dementia and, uh, again, strokes. I do a lot of stroke since I am in a stroke-certified rehab unit. Um, so sorry that I mentioned that a lot, but it's, uh, aphasia is where a person has trouble actually generating the language that they need to express or interpret ideas. So, uh, that's very frustrating for people, obviously. And I also do a uh, vocal voice. So that kind of deals with, uh, some of the patients I've been seeing recently as well, um, with post extubation patients. In what ways has COVID specifically affected uh, speech-language pathology? So for the patients I see in particular, with, related to COVID, at least when they have COVID, tend to be either post-extubation, which for your listeners who don't know, intubation is the process where we as medical professionals actually put a tube down your mouth uh, past the vocal folds and into the trachea. And you're unconscious for this because it's not pleasant. And we have a, a machine, a ventilator that breathes for you. Mm. Um, now, if this is planned, it can be 
you know, it's not as traumatic to say the vocal cords and all that, but if it is an emergency situation as, you know, is becoming more common, their priority is to keep you alive and they put it down your trachea. And that can result in some damage to the vocal folds, which are actually a huge part of swallowing. Mm -hmm. And then when you have patients who are unconscious for that length of time, and we're seeing patients who are being intubated for longer periods of time than is normal. Mm -hmm. So like pre-COVID, a five-day intubation was considered a long time intubated. Um, one of my patients I'm seeing now came off of 15 days. Holy crap. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And I, this is the one I'm just seeing right now. I had one who was on at 19. Wow. And, wow. Um, yeah. Like you're unconscious having a machine breathe for you for the better part of a month. So, so when someone <laughs> goes through that, when someone has a tube inserted uh, in through their trachea and so it's that through the mouth, down through the uh, through the vocal folds in the okay. trachea. Okay, okay, yeah, and and that persists for 10, 5, 10, 15 days. What is that like after that comes out? How, when they come to you, how are they? So there's a mix of things because often, well, obviously you can't eat with that yeah. in your throat. So that what they then also put down is a feeding generally tube. they put what's called an ng tube hmm. a nasogastric feeding tube where they put this one through your nose down the back of your throat and through your esophagus and all the way down to your stomach and that's how they get you nutrition that entire time you are intubated um so not only are they not using those muscles in their swallow which like any sort of musculature atrophies over time you know yeah um, you know, so they have trouble walking, but then they have trouble swallowing, right? Mm. Well, when they pull that tube back out, it's again, rubbing against the vocal cords. Uh, we call them vocal folds. So if I say that, that's the clinical term. You can call them vocal, co see, I can't even hardly, hardly say it. vocal <laughs> cords because my instructors drilled it into my head. It's vocal folds. Mm. But <laughs> um, so they're getting dragged out past the vocal folds and Again, if they were put in rough because it's an emergency situation, that causes a lot of damage. And your vocal cords actually uh, are a, they measure, they have little sensors on the bottom of them that measures air pressure in your lungs that helps the timing of your swallow, right? So that's another area that can potentially damage um, swallowing. And then the voice, you know, because what your vocal folds do is they actually vibrate, right? Yeah. So if you kind of take your hands together and you put them side by side with your thumbs overlapping, that's kind of your vocal folds together and they vibrate and let air come through. And that's how you produce voice, mm -hmm. right? So they're extremely just, you know, like essentially punched. And these are, yeah. the, your vocal folds are very small, thin muscles. Sure. Right? So they get damaged pretty easily so the voice is just incredibly rough and i also work with voice as well uh, if i didn't mention that earlier so i can do some therapy with that but the trouble with that is then we have to have a ent a ear nose and throat doctor to actually visualize the vocal folds so 
use a camera to see them so that we can evaluate the current state of them and ensure that therapy isn't going to damage them further and that there is not need for, say, a surgical correction or something of that nature. Gotcha. So you've yeah. got all of that stuff with your swallowing, your vocal folds. I also do some breathing because naturally you need breath to support speech. Yeah. I'm not like a respiratory therapist, but I work closely with them. And um, COVID obviously often comes with severe pneumonia. And so the patients you know, can't hardly get words out because they can't generate enough force to. And then we have these people on like 15 liters of oxygen, which is crazy. Like That's we never had, you know, and then on top of that, we sometimes have another like oxygen mask on top of the nasal cannula, 15 liters. That's going at 15 liters. So, so just doing everything you can to pump their lungs full of as much oxygen as they'll take. Yeah, pretty much to try and, yeah. you know, stave off having to intubate them because it's mm. such a traumatic experience. Because even then, not considering all those other factors, you also have what's called uh, ICU delirium, which is where basically, you know, the drugs they use to put you under are pretty powerful stuff. You kind of want that when you have a tube shoved down your throat, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. But it can cause a a mental kind of fog, right? That is disorients the patient. So they're very confused. You know, they don't know what day it is. And I mean, when you're first waking up, that's expected, but sure. we're starting to see this longer term than is expected because these patients have been under so long. Wait, so, so they keep the patients under for the entire mm -hmm. time that they're intubated. So when you're, when you're yes. under, when you're intubated for 19 days, you're out for 19 days. Yeah. Holy wow. crap. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. No. And I mean, now there's different forms, but if that's mm. specifically, if you're intubated yeah. now, there is a ventilator where they actually put in like a tracheostomy, mm -hmm. which is where they put, they make an incision essentially in around the Adam's apple to make it easy for you. And they put we appreciate like, that. or <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's around there. They kind of put it in between some rings, depending on the surgeon, depending on the NT, depending on the patient. Just to give you a ballpark, no, yeah, where they put a tube in your throat that way and hook you up to a machine. So that way they don't have to hopefully keep you unconscious. Mm. And I actually had a, uh, this was a while back when I, um, so I actually started in June. <laughs> so I started my medical career in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so that was, yeah. yeah. So one of my first patients that I end up seeing with COVID in our rehab unit is a guy with a brand new trach. He's 40 years old, you know, and suddenly he has to breathe out of a tube. And because he's breathing out of this tube, no air is going up and towards his vocal cords, his vocal folds to make speech, right? Yeah. So I basically had to teach him how to use his trach and clean his trach because you've got clean trachs very well because it's aligned directly to your lungs yeah and um <laughs> and teach him how to talk with this device in his neck 40 and years old. yeah 40 years old and then oh also at the same time he had severe severe swallowing issues which is in the medical field referred to as dysphagia 
So if you hear me reference dysphagia, that's what it means is swallowing issues. Yeah. So literally they did, they did a swallow study on him where they take an X-ray of your head and neck and we have you drink barium and see how things move, see if things kind of go down the trachea instead of the esophagus. And from there as a speech language pathologist, I actually do these on a regular basis. I can plan out a exercise regimen of swallowing exercises to help rehab those muscles. And basically this guy, they're like, you know, I got a report from another hospital because he came to our rehab unit where the only acute rehab unit within, I want to say it's 75 miles of our town. You know, it's, it's small town, Iowa, but, um, and basically they're like, you know, 75% of what this man tried to consume went down his airway. Um, I mean, so, <laughs> yeah. so basically what you're saying is that it's not the flu. <laughs> no, no, it is, is um, not the flu. Like so, this stuff. So one of the things that's, one of the things that's really striking me right now is like, and, and Michael and I have done this a lot on the pod as well, is there's so much focus on the deaths, on deaths that, yeah. that come as a result of COVID. And of course, that is incredibly important. I mean, we have you know over a quarter of a million people dead from this disease, uh, but that's not the only reason why this isn't just some flu. Yeah. Oh, like no, it's also no. all of like the people that survive it have to go through like terrible crap i mean i and i actually like a lot of what you're saying is stuff that i've kind of been passively aware of Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. i i had no idea just the extent of which um people have to like people the extent of things that people have to go through in order to survive this disease Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean that guy that 40 year old guy i mean he had some minor health issues but really nothing major yeah. yeah. And it hit him like a freight train. You know, he was just wrecked when we got him. Yeah. And I mean, he actually, he, uh, it's, it kind of sucks. He was such a good story. He, like, I got him back to eating. I got him back to drinking, which liquids are actually harder than really solids because right. yeah, they move faster, yeah. you know? And we actually got him off. Uh, we were able to remove the trach hmm. successfully. He could breathe without it. They were, it was sealing back up. And then one of the other things we're starting to see with COVID is it leaves you more susceptible to other things like heart issues, strokes. Mm-hmm. I've heard so about, yeah, he, I've read a fair amount about the stroke implications. Yeah, yeah. so he actually uh, later ended up dying in our hospital of a Ooh. stroke. Oh, my oh gosh. no! At forty, at forty years yeah. old—that's unheard of before this. And yeah. This the, ah, sorry, I don't want to get too morbid here, but it's just like no, I remember that's... working with this guy and talking to him about his, his wife and his kid that he was so excited to see. <sighs> sorry. So one of the parts uh... about that that I think is important to note is there have been a lot of people that have basically said, well the only reason why you can look at these COVID deaths and why they're as high as they are 
is because there are other things associated with certain deaths, like basically comorbidity. comorbidity. Yeah. Um, and like the idea of discounting comorbidity is just, it's so fucked up. Oh yeah, it's stupid. I mean, it's, well, you know, self-disclosure here, like my parents both got COVID and they have yeah. comorbidities. It laid them flat for two weeks. Thank yeah. and goodness they didn't have to go to the hospital, but like, you know, my dad still doesn't have his sense of smell or taste back. Yeah. You know? And and this and this patient that you worked with, like it wasn't necessarily the COVID that killed him. It was complications from it that caused heart failure, you said. Uh, stroke. stroke. Or he, stroke. Yeah, he was a yeah. stroke. I mean, yeah. we've seen an increase in like comorbidities with uh heart issues, strokes, uh more easily getting other pneumonias that aren't so often you see like a COVID-based pneumonia mm-hmm. yeah. instead of like a aspiration-based pneumonia, which is what I tend to deal with. And so then it seems to almost leave them more vulnerable after. And I mean, I'm not a, to be clear, I'm not a doctor. Yeah. I'm not a, you know, expert in lungs. I, you know, I, I know about it enough to help and do certain things. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I leave that to respiratory therapy for the most part. Sure. Uh, but, you know, it, well, like we, the gal who is on it that I'm seeing right now for 15 days, you know, we just got her down to seven liters of oxygen and I've been seeing her for two weeks now. Wow. And I mean, that's still seven liters of oxygen consistently. And even then, sometimes she still desats, uh, her ox blood oxygen lowers into like the low nineties. Like I, well, heck even today she hit like 87 when I was working with her. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, deep, deep breaths. Like let's, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what have the outlooks of the patients that you've been dealing with been like? And, and I guess since you started dealing with COVID patients in June, have, has their perspective changed? Like, are they worried? Are they, you know, after COVID, what do they think about the disease? Like, well, that entirely depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, so like she is, she's like, oh yeah, I'm never going to take it. She's like, I, you know, I can't take this lightly, lightly again, which yeah. leads me to believe she's kind of taken it lightly before, which God, there are way too many people who do that. Yeah. But yeah. Nathan, Nathan knows this because I kind of mentioned it. Um, I saw a patient the other day who he was on, he was intubated for, I want to say nine days, something like that. And I go in to see him for a swallowing evaluation because they want to see, okay, is he safe to start eating again? Can we pull out the nasogastric tube? And, you know, he's asked me, he's like, so what, what happened to me? I'm like, oh, you know, a little bit of confusion. That's completely normal. I'm like, well, you got COVID, you were intubated, um, you know, and now we've got you off the intubation and we've just got you on, you know, the nasal cannula delivering you oxygen that way. But you were out for about nine days, you know, having a machine breathe for you. And he's like, okay, I, but what happened to me? What caused it? And I said, well, you had COVID no, no, that, that doesn't make sense. 
what you know and here i am thinking did i read his chart wrong like sure. you yeah. know and i mean i talked to the nurse and she's like oh yeah you know pretty standard covid patient go you know yeah. he's fine for you to work with him and he's like no covid doesn't doesn't do that it's it's fine and i said no you had covid and you you know it, it hit you hard that's yeah. why you're here that's why you need this oxygen otherwise you feel like you can't even walk from the bed to the toilet you know a foot away hardly without getting short of breath he's like no 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 it's it's not covid tell me what's tell me what's wrong with me wow and i'm like it's it's covid i'm not lying to you yeah it's like fine if i can't get anything from you whatever oh my and, god yeah luckily i had completed my assessment and he was seeming relatively fine to eat well and that's another part of what makes my job difficult with covid right now and not that other medical professionals jobs aren't difficult but there's only so much i can get from an evaluation of watching somebody eat and feeling how their throat moves in that mm -hmm. i really you know to do a very good job at my a very good job for the patient I need to have visualization of exactly what's going on in there. Mm. But yeah. we're a small town hospital. We have one radiologist and he's in like his seventies. Uh, hmm. We can't risk him yeah. oh, getting wow. COVID oh. and going down on us. Cause otherwise you we're screwed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, so like there's some hospitals where they can do, um, essentially, they can actually put a camera up your nose and watch you swallow and achieve the same thing. And I would love to have one of those systems. But again, this is, I mean, this is in particular to rural settings. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we just don't have that equipment. Sure. But right? we're seeing rural settings being hit harder and harder by this disease, especially recently. And oh, yeah. No, I mean, we have a 10 bed ICU, and a 10 bed progressive care unit, uh, eight of the currently nine occupied beds when I left today were COVID patients. Mm. Eight wow. of the 10 progressive care beds, the progressive care unit beds were COVID patients. We, and because of that, we then have to move other patients who would normally be in those units to yeah. the medical surgical floor. And then that kicks people from that floor off other places to like our acute rehab unit. So we have two patients who really should be in like you know, a, a behavioral health unit, to be honest, on our acute rehab, where we have people trying to get like three hours of therapy a day in. Mm. And, you know, these guys are very sick, but they're also very disruptive to those patients who are trying to receive that other therapy. Yeah. Because, you know, they're sick. We, we were trying to help them, but we just are stuck staff wise. We have sure. one, you know, we're, we have only so many people to work with them and take care of people and still ensure that we're getting the best quality of care for all of our patients. Yeah. So I remember so, earlier, yeah. so I remember earlier in the pandemic, there was a lot of nationwide conversation about hospitals not having enough equipment. Has, has that still been the case? Like you mentioned that there are certain pieces of equipment that you can't get because of, um, like because it's a rural hospital, but are there shortages of other pieces of equipment like like masks or other protective gear or whatnot? 
So that's where I've actually been incredibly lucky. Um, so I actually interned at this hospital before I got hired and this was pre pandemic. So like, you know, this time last year, I was an intern at this hospital and then I got hired in June. Right. Yeah. And we, you know, our hospital, like you, you know, even though I was a student, like I just tagged along and listened to meetings and they're like, well, you know, maybe we should order some extra stuff just in case it starts to hit here. And somebody was like, oh, it'll, it'll never get this far. Like, uh, you know, we're in rural Iowa. Hmm. Luckily, somebody in shipping did us all a huge favor and bulked up our stores. Hmm. And so we had, you know, gloves and we had masks. And even now, we still have people, you know, we still have to be careful. Like, I'm not saying we're in a great position, but we're in, you know, we're not New York levels of bad where we have to use trash bags as PPE, yeah. you know? But I'm also part of like a, a speech language pathologist Facebook group. And, you know, I still read about that in some places yeah. like, oh, they gave, you know, a surgical mask to go into a, a COVID, a positive COVID patient's room, not even a post COVID, like where they've gotten over the infective oh stage. And it's like, and they're like asking, what do I do? I need to help to this patient. An enemy but... with like no tools, no weapons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we're still, I guess, everybody in my hospital who has N95s, they have to like wear them to the maximum hour limit, mm. you know, and then we get rid of them at that point. Um, I, I actually can't use an N95 uh, because there's a certain fit test. So to ensure that it's a proper mm. seal so that nothing's getting in, they actually like put you in this like tube and spray stuff at you that you're supposed to taste <laughs> and just, you know, I can't taste it. Like, you know, one of those 10% of people who think uh, cilantro tastes like soap, it's that sort of thing. <laughs> I'm one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, you know, I can't taste it. So what I end up using is what's called a papper which is like a positive air pressure rebreather, I think. I don't know. It's kind of like a very, uh, an imitation of the CDC gotcha. um, sort of thing where it's like the clear face shield and there's plastic all like plastic uh, hood over the top uh, of my head. Kind and of looks like it's going to clean up a, a radiation leak or something. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. And there, yeah, there's a tube that leads to like a fanny pack with a filtration unit and a, you know, a battery. Yeah. And let me tell you, I, I was stupid once when I got, was starting out and I didn't check the battery on that thing before I went into a COVID patient's room. Mm. Luckily they beep and warn at you. But I, when I heard that beep, I like, <laughs> I was not a happy camper and I got out of there. Yeah. Got <laughs> a new battery. Yeah. But so, your, your, your comments about the hospital beds, like, I think they emphasize another theme that has just been ringing true throughout this pandemic. We've been trying to emphasize it on this pod. It's like COVID is not existing in isolation and all of our other problems haven't stopped along the way. Oh, it's no. just another, it's another layer, the thickest layer of shit that are. <laughs> that oh, like, God. Yeah, that our uh, medical system is having to deal with, like the most challenging thing to layer on top of an already challenging and overburdened medical system. 
oh yeah, you want to hear a horrible story about that. So again, early on, uh, got a guy into our rehab unit, you know, swallowing issues, voice issues, you know, some confusion. And he didn't have insurance, mm-hmm. but there was like a good, some sort of program that allowed him to stay for our minimum number of days. But he also technically wasn't out of the window for possibly being infective. <sighs> and he is this, you know, he's an older gentleman. And he's like, talk, I'm talking with him. And he's like, I live with my son, his wife, and our grandchildren, and my wife, who is elderly. And he's like, I don't know how they all didn't get infected before, but they didn't by some miracle. Yeah. And how can I go back? Mm. He's like, and I'm like, I'm trying to brainstorm with him. And I'm like, you know, he, is there a room we can separate you in? Is, and he's like, there's one bedroom. It doesn't mm-hmm. have an attached bathroom. You know, and I'm just like, I, you know, it just seeing this, this man and talking with him, like it broke my freaking heart. Like, yeah, you know, we ended up finding him a way to be safe. Mm. Uh, We all pitched in some to uh, actually get him a hotel room which is not an ideal solution but it was one of those hotels with like an outside door Uh uh-huh yeah um so his family could like deliver food for that and but because i mean we you know they they weren't gonna let him stay out the infectivity because his money had run out you know the the program that got him in had you know run out of money for him and it was just this horrible heartbreaking wrenching thing yeah that's incredible that you guys were able to help him with that even outside of his stay at the hospital yeah yeah kyle uh i gotta say um you're a fucking hero man man. (laughs) like like the the you the people that you work with um like medical workers throughout this entire pandemic have been absolute heroes and um, the fact that a lot of them aren't getting the resources they, they need, uh, the fact that a lot of them are having to deal with the, you know, administrative bullshit, like you had to go through with that particular patient brought on by the fact that we don't have a single pair system. Like it is, it is so amazing what you all do. And we, we cannot stress enough how much we appreciate having you on. So Kyle, well, thank you so much so for joining much. us. Thanks. But I mean, I'm not, I, it's not like COVID is, I mean, it affects everything I do, which sounds horrible, but it's not like I'm one of the ICU nurses who's consistent, you know, working with these patients for a 12 hour shift. Sure. You know, I go in there for half hour, hour to work with them on certain things. Yeah. Again, because that's what the insurance companies will pay for. Um, You know, they're the ones who are really taking it on the nose. I mean, I can't tell you how many of our nurses have gotten COVID. Like actually just today I saw one who came back and it was so good to see her because she actually ended up as a patient in our hospital, which I'm sure was a very weird experience for her. Yeah. Or like another nurse I who I work with who was watching one of the uh the shall we say disruptive gentlemen our acute floor, um, our acute rehab unit. 
um, I walked by that room and I smelled feces mm. and I, you know, I'm like, Hey, do you smell that? Does he, you know, did it recently happen? Does he need change? And she's like, Oh no. It, it, do you smell it bad? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, I lost my sense of smell to COVID. Thank you for telling me, let's go take care of him. Oh my God. Oh. Cause you know, like that's not something you think of sure. until in the moment it's like, Oh yeah, that's, you know, he, all of no, the five no, senses no, are what you need to help take yeah, care of Yeah, yeah. Through, no, the fault of her own, you know. And I mean, you know, we took care of him as soon as it was realized, obviously. But it's just like, yeah, that, you know, things like that happen. Yeah. You know, or like, like I said, the one nurse who just got back, you know, she's still pretty winded. And, you know, they they have her on lighter duty, which is good. Not that there's much light duty anymore, but yeah, exactly. Somewhat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So regardless, dude, you're you know, you're you're working hard out there, you're putting yourself on the line. Uh thanks so much for that. And you know, thanks, thanks again for joining us. This has been a great interview. Yeah. Thank yeah, no so problem. Thanks for sharing your experiences. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to anytime. Usually we end the pod with highlights, but after all of that that we just went over with Kyle, which, you know, once again, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. We feel that it ending on a high note is not necessarily going to be appropriate at this point. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to do a moment of silence for all of the people whose lives have been torn apart by this pandemic, either those who've, whose lives have ended, those who have had loved ones whose lives have ended, or those who have had, who've gone through untold hardships because of COVID-19, either economically or with, with their health. Thank you for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.